back and forths that they were like caught in between. It's a single shot from a sniper who takes a deep breath, you know, and squeezes his trigger. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Winstanley. We turn to the situation on the ground in Palestine. The Tel Aviv newspaper Haaretz reported this past week that senior Israeli military intelligence officials are complaining that the bank of targets in the Gaza Strip has become, quote, very problematic, with the quality of available targets being lower than the army would need to mount an effective operation. Meanwhile, the Israeli army announced it is considering redeploying attack helicopters over the occupied West Bank, specifically to Janine and the Janine refugee camp, and is reportedly uh, debating the use of armed drones that are capable of dropping grenades. This comes, Israeli media reports, after an Israeli commando from a so-called counter-terror unit of the police was killed by Palestinian resistance factions in the Janine camp. And of course, on May 11th, Al Jazeera's iconic Palestinian reporter Shireen Abu Akleh was executed by by an Israeli sniper in the Janine refugee camp. Israel initially blamed Palestinians for Abu Akleh's death and later walked back those claims, but Israeli police continued to attack her loved ones and mourners in the days after she was killed. Live coverage of her funeral showed Israeli officers using batons against the pallbearers carrying Abu Akleh's casket nearly causing them to drop it. We're glad to have our good friend John Elmer back on the show today to help us make sense of all of this. John is a longtime journalist and researcher, and he's my co-host on The Brief Podcast. John, welcome back to the Electronic Intifada. Always happy to be here. Yeah, great to have you on again. Your last appearance was, um, which I think was the first on video. Yeah. Yeah. Since we introduced video, went really crazy. You know, people are really hungry for that kind of uh, deep analysis you were giving. So it's great to have you on again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion. So, John, first off, your initial thoughts on Israel's execution of Shireen Abu Akleh and the attempts to not only blame Palestinians for her death, um, but not one corporate media outlet that I read in the past week or so explained what the Israeli army was doing in the first place in Janine camp. Um, give us some context in your reaction as a journalist and as someone who knows Janine Camp intimately. Yeah, I mean, it's shocking, not surprising, I guess, is the terms, right? Um, the um, stature of Shireen in the Palestinian media community obviously made the situation um, particularly salient to everybody. Uh, people grow like growing up, watching her cover Um, you know, watching her cover their homeland and often while they're not in their homeland, while they're banned from their country, watching outside. Um, And so she wasn't just any other reporter. She really had um, kind of come into, you know, grown up in the age of these uh, Arab, uh, like pan-Arab satellite channels, international satellite channels like Al Jazeera, um, which really for the first time was bringing Um, that traditional news format, um, the satellite TV news format, where you can run 
uh, without commercials um, for long periods of time on the ground. And that's one thing that, um, you know, one of the reasons that uh, people, the kids in Palestine talk about Shireen is because sometimes she would be on a story for four live hours, right? Like sometimes you'd watch all afternoon while she navigated her way around the, the Israeli incursion into Ramallah during the first intifada. Um, and that kind of footage, not just from Al Jazeera, but from local television as well, um, that was a critical, critical pillar for Palestinian unity in the Intifada, um, the, you know, as a way of spreading um, this sort of collective courage um, when people were seeing what was going on, not in a clip, but with reporters that were actually remaining there, not to just get a couple shots and some B-roll, um, but really spending the day with the people. And at times in the day, you know, she would have to take cover. We would all have to take cover um, in somebody's home. And so then all of a sudden, you know, you're getting depths, the depths, the layers to her reporting um, all function like that. So she became, you know, seen to a lot of people as like basically a family member. And really the only reason that she's getting any coverage in North America, and even the coverage she's getting has been terrible. The CBC in Canada where I live uh, was terrible on it. Um, um, but these deaths are what happens like daily, right? Like the, the fact that she was wearing a flak jacket and a helmet. Um, I mean, there was times in the Intifada for journalists where we decided that you shouldn't wear a helmet and a black jacket because they're just going to murder you anyway. This idea that that's uh, a random bullet is going to hit you. It's just really not how it works. I mean, maybe if you were a journalist and you turned and ran away down an alley or something, something like that might happen. But, and, and Ali Samudi, who was with her at, at the event, they described it. And it sounded like any day in Janine working, you interact with the soldiers. The soldiers aren't coming out of some mysterious place. They're on an arrest raid. They're blocking streets with their uh, armored vehicles. And journalists are there in a group. Everybody sees everybody. And this is where, you know, words like execution or assassination start to creep in because they were there. They, that wasn't the moment they pulled up. They had been there for 20 minutes, half an hour. Sometimes you'll sit on a story in Janine uh, for eight hours waiting for the tanks to go. And in the daytime, the, the shooting in the daytime is uh, very, very minimal. Palestinians aren't sh going around shooting, carrying shootouts in the middle of a workday, uh, in the middle of the sun against a far more uh, violent army. Um, and so there, there was no back and forths that they were like caught in between. It's a single shot from a sniper who takes a deep breath, you know, and squeezes his trigger. It, it's, it's a murder. Um, whether they knew it was her uh, is unclear because Usually it's somebody that, you know, speaks Arabic and is on a lesser known network uh, or, got, you know, God forbid, works for a Hamas television station, in which case they're celebrated as legitimate targets. So it's, yeah, the, 
the situation is, I think, really shocking for Palestinians because it really does feel like, you know, if you can take her, then you can take anybody, right? Like that, that there, there isn't anybody immune from it. Yeah, she was a big name reporter, right? She was yeah. um, a household name all over the Arab world. Yeah, and she'd been covering situations like that up and down the West Bank, you know, particularly in the Intifada in 2000 to 2003 or four specifically. Um, yeah, I mean, she wasn't a reckless, like her, her job wasn't to, to do the most dangerous thing. She was a, a people's person. She wanted her crew to be safe. And you could see her on the day of the action. She has um, professional body armor, military grade helmet. Um, you know, you can tell that they're being careful. Um, she, she wasn't um, reckless or, you know, that's, this isn't something like the Israelis say like, oh, you know, you get your nose in crossfire and it's a dangerous, it's not like that. It's not like that. There's not two sides standing in trenches shooting across at each other. There's an invasion by the Israelis that is, they call it a raid, but essentially they'll have maybe, maybe only one, but they might have two or three names, almost assuredly school-aged children that they're going into the house to arrest. And in order to carry out that arrest, they have to come in. I mean, they can either come in secretly dressed up as Arabs and try to grab them under stealth but more often than not, what they do is they actually just come in in armored vehicles, hold down the, the block where the person lives, um, and that's, that's the arrest raid. And anytime the Israelis do that, anytime they mass armor, I mean, you guys know it better than anyone, anytime they amass armor, they get hit by stones. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, Anytime there's an Israeli military presence, it's met by stones and resistance. So um, you can see how all of those situations are very, um, in terms of, of like military terrain, um, they're very logical. She was doing, she was a veteran reporter. She was working with other veteran reporters. Ali Samudi, the journalist who was shirt, who was shot first, I mean, he's he's like a veritable librarian of the resistance in Janine. He's been covering it for, you know, for for longer than Shireen. And and in Janine alone, he's lived in Janine. And he, you know, he is, he's been through, I wouldn't even want to put a number on it, but, you know, 500 of those days. So there is a, there's a logic to both sides, to how Palestinians fight, to how the Israelis operate to how journalists operate, especially ones who know what they're doing like that. And that's part of the tragedy is that essentially, you know, you don't take cover as a journalist. You, you do the opposite. You actually want to put yourself out there essentially to say it has to be a murder. You know, it, it, we can't be running down an alley and getting a shot skip off a wall and hit you. Like you, the, your best bet is to just put your hands in the faith that the Israelis won't murder you in cold blood. And then, you know, if you're, if you so happen to be born in Jerusalem and you want your family wants to have your funeral in Jerusalem, 
they'll attack the funeral at that time too. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's been, I think for everybody, journalists um, and Palestinian alike, it's just been, you know, it's just cold. It's a cold reality that we know and um, really nobody is immune. If, if, if anyone were to be immune, someone like Shireen was. She was not reckless. She was very much uh, covering people's stories. She was just as happy to duck into uh, a refugee camp home and drink tea and wait till the, you know, the action outside calmed down. Um, But there's no, eventually, you know, eventually you do it enough days and they killed her. Yeah, it happened the killing happened last week as we're filming this and um i just found the whole thing really depressing because it's it's like you said it was not surprising but shocking in the sense that you kind of i don't know i guess sometimes we kind of credit the israelis with more intelligence uh, more common sense than they actually have of what well, you think, well, they wouldn't do this for someone so well known. But like you said, it could have just been the whim of a particular soldier who decided, well, this is just some Arab journalist and I'm not going to um, get any kind of repercussions for this. Nothing's going to happen to me. And if anything, I'll probably celebrate as a hero. So, you know, I can get away with it and I'll do it just because I can. And that's kind of the logic of colonialism and it 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 had this massive impact on the palestinians um i mean i i read one um person um in i think it was in janine a young man who was saying i had friends who'd been killed i didn't cry for but i cried for shireen and i I think it just says something really about the sheer brutality of the nature of the israeli occupation yeah, and the reach of it, I think. There's yeah. something about a reach of it because when they watched her on television, she had this kind of, um, you know, a, a, a kind of distance. She didn't. She was very ground to earth. But, you know, the like, that they, they could take anyone. You know, yeah. I think it was just a real, like, yeah. It's, and then, it was sending a message. It, of a course. Message. And then, you know, even in death, um, they attacked her and they attacked her family. I mean, they, they went the, the day after she was killed, they went to her family's house in Jerusalem and, you know, started brutalizing family members and mourners, um, taking down, you know, um, telling them that they had to take down the Palestinian flags outside their house. And then the day after that was the funeral and they attacked the pallbearers. Um, and then we have, you know, right wing, you know, uh, Jewish communal newspapers, I think they ran this in Canada as well as the US, these op-eds, you know, Shireen Abu Akleh, should we mourn, you know, the death of an anti-Semitic journalist? So this like, this vil- this ongoing constant vilification and dehumanization of, of an icon, um, of a journalist. Of They murdered her twice. Exactly. Over and even and her over colleagues, again. right? Like yeah. even her colleagues, the, the professional colleagues at BBC, uh, at the CBC right. in Canada, people who are journalists through and through still 
still weren't able to pull through on this one story. You know, you can listen to them saying in their interviews, like, oh, well, they'll jump in and say, well, we don't know. We don't have proof yet. You know, like right. that's that's the one thing they want to make sure in their news report that gets through is that uh, we don't know yet. Right. You know, like still giving Israel the benefit of the doubt at all times with this with this kind of, you know, real collective cowardice yeah. when it's one of your own. Like there's not even the elements of a basic union. Uh, like, you know what I mean? There's yeah, just yeah, yeah. rallying around your tribe and saying like yeah there's not even any basic professional standards it's no, like no, just pure ideology palestinians yeah yeah i mean two weeks after they you know awarded uh pulitzer prize to all journalists of ukraine right, right. for what like <laughs> just a kind of meaningless right. gesture um you compare that to the way that they you know we could talk about the new york times forever but the way that they Palestinians just magically die on their front pages is really unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and when you have, like she was in a press pool when she was shot. There was eight other people in that situation. And um, we still don't, oh, we still don't know. It's so mysterious. Right, yeah. there were there were eyewitnesses. Yeah, <laughs> many but, of them. Yeah. And, and everybody around the edge of the camp is looking in and watching and like, yeah. And, and and not even that. They could watch it. The journalist at the CBC could watch the video and then probably wouldn't jump to the, you know, to, to feeling like the most important interjection in the entire interview is to say, oh, excuse me, to the, you know, female Palestinian journalist, you know, oh, excuse me, we don't actually know that right. yet. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, Slovenly, like, yeah, it's just kind of a yeah, it feels dirty. It feels it's dirty grim. when you watch it happen. Yeah. Like so, yeah. Yeah, and Janine, so openly. And Janine's a town that many journalists have been killed in, um, and so you know, in term in Janine terms, people were shocked. But um, you know, when when the when there's time to rebuild Palestine, there'll be monuments to the journalists that were killed in Janine, mm. and, and she won't be alone on that list. And um, this this idea that Israel is able to make it seem like it was rare, like a rare occurrence, like oh, we don't, we didn't even know how this could happen. It's ridiculous, just ridiculous. Let's uh, shift pace a little bit and talk about recent events in Janine. Um, John, you spent time you've spent a lot of time in janine you were in janine during the early days of the second intifada which um began as a unarmed popular uprising and increasingly became militarized as a response to israel's violence against palestinian unarmed protesters um, and just recently israel made an announcement or it came out in the israeli press that they might and they're considering once again, to deploy Apache attack helicopters in the West Bank and specifically to Janine. Um, could you talk about the significance of that announcement and what does it say about the power of Palestinian armed resistance factions recently, um, especially in Janine, but also about the collapse or the coming collapse of the Palestinian Authority power structure, which has helped Israel to undermine those factions for the past decade or more 
Yeah. So, I mean, Israel's helicopter gunships have played a really important role since the, uh, the Intifada, uh, the second Intifada began. And they carried out um, deep assassination campaigns using helicopters, Hellfire missiles, launching them on taxis, launching them on people walking down streets. Um, they also used uh, other forms like death squads that dress up like your neighbors and kill you. Um, but the helicopter gunship is a, a psychological weapon. Um, when you're sitting in Janine, you know, when I was working in Janine, so I was in a lot of situations where I would be sitting with people <laughs> who I'm interviewing because of the work they do. Uh, and you'd be sitting around and, um, yeah, you'd see the helicopter come up on the horizon and just like do what a helicopter does. They can loiter <laughs> and it's terrifying. It's terrifying because it's um, there's nothing you can do about it. You're just kind of like, it's yeah, a bolt coming from the sky and who's, who's, who's this one aimed at? Um, psychologically, it's, it's significant, especially in a place like the West Bank where things are tight and um, yeah, there was a lot of um, collateral damage from those attacks. Um, but I think it's signaling, I, I see it as a signaling of the return of the assassination policy. And Israel's assassination policy was one of the critical pillars in um, destroying the Palestinian national movement, um, particularly during the Intifada. They had assassinated, uh, you know, dozens of leadership from each faction. And if you can imagine just eliminating and what that leaves you with, you know, it leaves you with 20 year old commanders because your 35 year old veterans are dead. Um, and the biggest problem for Palestinian resistance has been to regenerate um, this, uh, to bounce back from this assassination program in the West Bank that numbered four and 500 people, depending on how you count activists and leaders. Um, um, the capacity of those groups needs to be built back um, and right on the heels of the assassination campaign when they uh, started to wind it down after Hamas won elections in 2006, then you had the Dayton plan, which so then you had the IDF and uh, Palestinian security forces. Um, so you had you had a two pronged struggle now. Um, often you'd get arrested from one and, and, you know, you'd get arrested by the PA and then you'd get arrested by Israel and get interrogated with what you told the PA. So the resistance in the West Bank got these multiple layers and then, and then they walled it off. Um, and so we haven't really been able to, and I don't think Israeli intelligence has been able to, um, to know for the last five or 10 years um, how the uh, reemergence of the armed factions in the West Bank are going to play out. And I, I would posit that neither did the armed factions know how it's going to play out because it's a, it's a unique situation, um, it, you know, to create ghettos that are surrounding you, um, the difficulty of getting in and out of those ghettos, um, the ability to mount um, you know, like critical actions, like to get enough people when you're walled off inside of these ghettos in the West Bank, like, like it is in Gaza. Um, 
there wasn't a lot of ways for once the Israelis left, there wasn't a lot of ways for people in Gaza to interact with the Israelis. Um, and so they built a rocket program. They built a tunnel network. They built an indigenous arms um, manufacturing capacity. Um, the West Bank's a bit different though, because the West Bank is completely encircled by Israel. And so getting things to the West Bank is very difficult. I mean, just selling your vegetables in the West Bank is difficult, right? Um, uh, so it's, it's I, I, I still don't, and I don't think they do have a clear answer about how, uh, how it would escalate. How, what would an escalation look like? The um, Israelis, I think we're saying that they're gonna escort their troops into Janine, um, like bring the helicopter gunships because people in Janine have been shooting back. Um, and Janine is one of the last places, maybe the last place in Palestine that actually still has gun caches. You know, like they have gun caches in elsewhere, but a lot of them are homemade weapons. Um, but legitimate fighting, um, like assault rifles, Janine is pretty much the only place that has those at this point. Um, so they do fight back. They do shoot back. The, the Israelis don't get to just drive around and get hit by a paint bomb. They're getting shot at. And um, yeah, I mean, you can read, you can read the soldiers in, you know, Yedio Aronot or uh, uh, what's the uh, Channel 7, the, the Settler News. Like you can, you can hear the soldiers talking about that getting shot at is up. You know, there was a bit of a downtime in the... Um, you know, in the, in the 2010s, I guess. Um, but between last year's unity action where the West Bank and Gaza seemed to be in unison on those actions around Haram al-Sharif, and then even in 48, even in 48, there was demonstrations and things that I think was, if you remember back to the beginning of the first, the second intifada, it, those demonstrations that happened inside Israel Palestinian demonstrations. Those were seen as, and you know, that Israel massacred 13 of them. Those were considered a very crucial, um, yeah, it was a, a unification that hadn't happened quite that way uh, in the history before that. Their history, Palestinian history is always such in such flux that it's hard to say that it's not like they didn't think about it before, um, but it gave them an opportunity for that, I think in a way that hadn't been before. Thanks, John. Um, I, you know, wanted to to bring it over to Gaza. Um, as Asa mentioned, we had you on last year, almost exactly a year ago, to talk about um, kind of the situation um, when Israel was bombarding Gaza uh, for eleven days. Now, the Israeli army, uh, as I mentioned before, um, has said that it has a quote problematic number of high quality targets in Gaza. Um, in the past, the Israeli army's assessment of low quality targets in Gaza meant that it wantonly bombarded civilians in their homes and destroyed key facilities and infrastructure, just carpet bomb policy. Um, so the assessment that, that they announced this week um, is significant for two reasons. One, obviously, that it is pre-admitting war crimes against Palestinian civilians the next time they decide to bomb Gaza. 
but two, that their surveillance and intelligence matrix inside Gaza is sweeping. They know who lives in every home. They can somehow attach some sort of, you know, metric to low quality versus high quality. Um, just a, a stupefying, you know, dehumanizing um, label to begin with. But, um, you know, and, and they possibly know the rank of each resistance faction member. Um, you know, how do you think Israel's been assessing another assault and what can you say about the capabilities of the resistance in Gaza now? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's a certain deterrence, I think, that they've reached. And these are I, I, I just see, see these as as verbal, um, like verbal threats, essentially saying, like, we've knocked out all your military stuff and now we're coming for your families. But I mean, that's something I think that they always do. They definitely have a lack of targets. Um, um, Islamic Jihad and Hamas have been for 15 plus years building an underground network, um, which consists of tunnels, but also crucially consists of uh, like office spaces and training areas and areas to keep um, what might be targeted above ground um, away from the targets. I mean, one of the frustrations that Israel has is that um, following the Hezbollah war in 2006, that Qassam buried its launchers. So they have launchers that come up from the sand, fire, and then bury. And they have a like a, a heat suppression blanket over the top. And so there's no, the Israelis get really frustrated that they can't fly around and target the thing that just launched. Um, the thing that just launched on YouTube and we all watched it on Twitter or whatever, and the Israelis can't do anything about it. Um, and then the other parts of the target bank are they've destroyed the country, like destroyed the enclave. They've destroyed the ghetto, like what, six, seven times in the last 15 years or whatever, like some stuff gets rebuilt and it's amazing what Palestinians do uh, reusing uh, the, the, concrete and re-straightening the rebar and stuff like that but yeah your your target bank is smaller because you've carried out uh you know four of the most brutal uh they already yeah, bombed wars everything. of oppression right like on a trapped people it's just and then they'll take out entire i mean yeah i mean if go back to the janine camp they took out the entire area of the Janine camp where the most famous ambush happened, where the soldiers were going through the narrow alleys and got pulled into what they called the bathtub um, by a teenager. Um, and they lost 13 of them in the camp at that time. And they just lost their minds. And that's what led them to bulldoze the entire camp. So then you could see them saying a few years later that Janine has a few less targets in the target bank, right? Because they, they literally demolished the entire place. Um, yeah, and they don't make any distinctions in the Gaza Strip either, right? Because it's a Hamas government. So it's a Hamas telecommunications company. It's, a, it's Hamas police officers. It's Hamas teachers. It's, um, yeah, so there's, yeah, they've never shown any problem going outside of their target bank. But I think it also is a sign that they don't, they don't have the on the ground intelligence that they used to have, right? They used to live inside Gaza. They used to, Palestinians used to get arrested inside Gaza and taken to Israeli bases. There was an interaction. There was a, you know, there was a, a presence that's just not there 
now. The Israelis, for the Israelis to get spy information from Gaza, it's not as easy as it once was, because it's got to be done, you know, in ways that are easier to be caught. Um, and so, yeah, they, I think that they don't have very good intelligence on the ground. And I don't think they have a very big target bank because they don't have very good intelligence on the ground. And some of this Israeli stuff, some of it's like interagency de like debating, right? Like trying to get more assets pointed at this thing. So, you know, the one head of one branch of the military says we need more, you know, target acquisitions as a, a message to the intelligence side to try to figure out you know, because the thing is, is what are the targets that they're targeting? If the group is underground and has the capacity to move all around underground and your forces, Israel, are quite clearly not going to be invading Gaza anytime soon um, based on what happened last time and the fact that they're now however many years since 2014, their tunnels are that much better. I don't see a ground operation happening. Um, and so it's the air force in, to a degree saying like, give us more targets because if all we can do is drop bombs from the air, um, we need to have a longer list. Yeah. I think the, yeah. the point you make about intelligence is a good one because um, Hamas, since Hamas was uh, elected to power in 2006, they've been um quite determined to root out collaborators and informants and you know they control the Gaza Strip um, in a quite singular fashion whereas when the Palestinian Authority was in charge before 2006 um, you know they were notoriously corrupt for one thing but also you know the Palestinian Authority is an entity whose whole reason for existence is to collaborate with Israel. Like you mentioned, you know, the resistance fighters would be interrogated by the PA and then re-interrogated by the Israelis who would then use, basing their questions on what they were told by the PA. Um, and of course, um, you know, another notorious example of that, which um, I think we've talked about before was the um, kidnap essentially by the Israelis of the, of Ahmed Sadat, the the leader of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, in um, when was that? Two thousand five, two thousand six. Yeah, even later, two thousand seven, because he was in the was, prison for a couple of years. Right. So he was he he, was he had been held by the Palestinian Authority um, under a kind of collusion agreement between the British government and the israelis um and uh, but even that wasn't enough for them and they you know they <laughs> invaded and bulldozed the prison and and kidnapped him um so yeah i mean i i think the the lack of targets has, has got to do a lot to do with um lack of good intelligence on the ground in gaza like you said but um mm. also it is just they've bombed everything already essentially and the military infrastructure, as you've mentioned, in Gaza is so much more sophisticated now than it used to be. You know, it's, it's done this stupendous job of these kind of Viet Cong style um, 
resistance tunnels underground, this, uh, this huge network um, that we've um, seen so much about and heard so much about. Yeah, and, and that makes it so that the Israelis, I, there, I just don't think there's any way there's a ground invasion happening. If you can imagine, I think I said it on the show when we were talking last time, but can you imagine yeah. 30 Israeli soldiers sitting in a circle deciding who is going down the tunnel first? No, like, they're just, just not going to do it. It seem like it's going to happen. <laughs> they'd, get, they'd get wiped out. Um, what do you make of this whole recent um, upsurge? And it... This has been a kind of return of our resistance to the West Bank. I mean, and, and this is quite a significant, um, quite a significant development. You know, with, like you said, the the armed resistance in the West Bank really came to an end um, quite some time ago. Now, you know, I mean, we could date it back to certainly the end of the 2010s, um, and. You know, of course, there has been individual um, armed attacks that have car- been carried out, but it seems only recently, um, in the last year, really, that there's been a real guerrilla base, an upsurge in in Janine. That's how it seems to me. Um, yeah, since the since the attacks on Gaza last year. Yeah, yeah of of the armed factions, of organized armed factions. And um, and we can't as, as well um, underestimate the effect, the psychological effect of the six escaped Palestinian prisoners, too. So, what, what do you make of the significance of of the return of our resistance to the West West Bank, based in Janine, and um, what do you think its prospects are for success in a, in a to, to develop in a similar to way to what has happened in Gaza? Um, yeah, I mean, I think Janine is is a, is a complicated story. Um, Janine is held like the areas around Janine are held by Islamic Jihad. And in the city, uh, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades are a strong faction within the city, and they are ostensibly opposed to the PA, which creates this really interesting sort of, um, you know, there's a, a real independent streak in Janine. Where you have but the Al-Aqsa Martyr Brigades is, um, you know, began as Feta, an armed Feta. faction of Feta. Yeah, so you have the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades attacking the legislative offices of the Feta and the Palestinian Authority when they were, you know, to, to hold the line on what, there was a number of agreements about uh, standing down militants in Janine, and they were given a, uh, a chance to you know, sort of be absorbed into the PA security force. So they created this dynamic where there's an armed security force in Janine, PA security force, which hadn't happened since the Intifada, but was what the dream originally for Israel was, was that PA guys in Janine would be security for Janine. I mean, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades in Janine were anti-Arafat when I was living there. Um, Arafat came after the ma- the massacre in the Janine camp, the war in the Janine camp, and he came in a helicopter. Um, and Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade's members fired at the helicopter. They didn't want uh, him and Saab Arafat to land because they were um, they felt they had been sold out by um, by that situation. So the weapons in Janine are in part because the camp 
is virtually impenetrable. And there was some stuff on the <clears throat> Shireen story that she was in the camp, but she was not in the camp. She was on the road on the outside of the camp and the road that the Israelis were on, on the outside of the camp, yeah. because they're not going into the camp. Yeah. And that, uh, that allows their possibilities for gun caches, something as simple as a, a hidden gun cache where you can not get raided and lose them all. Um, and Janine has been able to apparently um, protect those. Um, and Janine also has, uh, has links to Northern Israel. Um, so they trade, um, I mean, the wall prevents that now, but there's at least to some degree, like a criminal um, smuggling possibility from the north um, into the sort of into the Galilee um, areas. So they do have guns. Whereas in Hebron or in Jerusalem, you're seeing people with hand, like handmade uh, Carlo guns and stuff like that. But um, Janine's firing back with real weapons. And and where, where are these weapons from? Because, from, I mean, it's a hard question to answer, but a lot of them look to be American weapons. Yeah, a lot of them are, I think, just straight up, a lot of them are sold by Israelis. They're sold by, on the criminal market in Israel. Um, and between the Arab, you know, the Palestinian um, Israelis and the Israelis themselves, everyone, before the fence was there, Janine had very intimate relations with Northern Israel. Some of the funniest stories would be be sitting drinking a cup of tea and somebody would come racing down the road in a brand new car and sort of pull the e-brake and spin it around the town square. And it'd be some Israeli's car that he had just stolen by hitching into town and whatever and on <laughs> phones in the car. And uh, yeah, so there was a lot of that. There's a lot of the uh, criminal smuggling to get weapons. And then um, there, yeah, like, I think I, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't know this, but, um, I'm assuming that the, the cash, the place that they're storing them is better than in any of these other places that get raided. And, you know, over the last 20 years, we've seen a number of places where they'll put four or five guns on a table and say like this, we caught this from this, you know, metal foundry shop or whatever. I mean, it doesn't take all that many guns to um, make Israel realize they're contending with weaponry. You know, when they came, when they left town after picking up Zechariah Zabedi and the others that broke out of the prison, um, they got followed on motorbikes. They were being shot at from motorbikes, which is a interesting tactic that hadn't seen too much before, but. Um, highly effective. Um, but yeah, in reality, when they come in in all that armor, there's not a lot that you can do there. It's shooting at an armored vehicle, unless you've got some kind of particular inside information is just Palestinians just unfortunately don't have the weaponry right now. And they don't have the, the raw explosives that they used to have access to when there was not a wall all around Janine. Um, and it makes it's made it a lot tougher. And I think that's um, something that's I mean, maybe it's going on internally and we just haven't seen it yet. And when the Intifada and the West Bank breaks out, we can say, OK, that's what they were doing. Um, we can see it after the fact. But at, at what from what we know right now, 
Um, you know, there's been a war on militants in the West Bank for 22 straight years, and it was 15 of it was the Israelis, and they smashed them, they killed hundreds of them, they killed their family members, they destroyed their schools and their shops and their, you know, they missed years of going to school. Um, and then just as that ended, um, you know, Hamas gets elected and all through the West Bank, by the way, Hamas gets elected and Israel puts together an international coalition of trainers, including Canada, including the UK, to, uh, and led by the US, um, to train indigenous Palestinians to fight the other Palestinians that still want to fight. Um, and so those two groups haven't fought. The Palestinians haven't shot at each other. Um, but there's a layer below that, that just like they wiped out all the charities. They wiped out all the community centers, you know, anything Hamas, anything church related, all those, you know, church events, they, they were destroyed. The, the imams were fired. You know, the PA fired the imams so they couldn't be on the mosques. The war, yeah, it just took on a new shape. And in that war, Palestinian resistance has chosen not to shoot back at Palestinian. Like they've clearly made a choice not to shoot back at Palestinian agents, which just makes it difficult for us to know how many weapons there are, because for the most part, Israel's playing it pretty safe. They're 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 not trying to get killed. They're always very trying to play it safe. Um, yeah, and I mean, guns aren't the only thing. We remember like that raid uh, last year, two years ago, on the camp outside Ramallah, where the where the kid, the teenager, dropped a slab of tile off the roof right. onto the soldier because yeah, he didn't have any guns because his family's home was raided and they didn't have any, you know, and he took a slab of tile of concrete and dropped it off the thing. So it's, you know, they're always, they're always in a state of resistance. It's difficult from the outside to know, um, like, how much stockpile has been able to be uh, amassed, because the wall, the wall around most parts of the West Bank is very formidable. There's parts around Janine that are less so, but the amount of space that you have to cover and just it's a lonely space when you're out there without an Israeli ID. So I, there's just real limitations like physical geography, like man-made geography limitations that are, are very difficult to like this ghettoizing of Palestine is a strategic, uh, it, it's a strategic move for Israel. Um, and it's going to, I think, be reckoned with in the next, you know, like either the next intifada is going to have to reckon with these walls, with these ghettos, with, you know, and the Palestinian security forces themselves are going to have to decide at some moment, are we going to shoot on our own people or are we going to turn our guns in the other direction? And I think it's, it's not clear where we're at at that point. If you'll remember, the second intifada began, um, began with Palestinian security forces turning their guns on Israelis on 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 
mutual patrols, you know, like on a shared patrol, just turned and shot him with his gun. And that was basically for Israel. You know, that was when they were like, they changed all the rules about who gets to be trained. That was Dayton, Keith Dayton. Um, and that was the, you know, the famous quote um, by Dayton that they were going to create new men. This isn't, this wasn't going to be the PLO that was armed. Because after, you know, after the first peace agreement, there's a significant element of the Palestinian population that wants a Palestinian security force. Like people, good people, principled leftists, um, you know, principled national liberation strugglers said, if, if they're going to give us guns and money to train and create our own army, it would be stupid for us to not do that. Right. So there's legitimate voice early on in creating the Palestinian security forces that Palestinians said, yeah, let's get guns. Let's get a base like in Jericho. Let's train. Let's do these things because it's a way to train our fighters. And then by the first by the second intifada, Israel could quickly see that that couldn't work. And they they had to they, they stood them all down immediately. And then when they rebuilt them under Keith Dayton, they said uh, these were new men. And then they did all these things where like all these um, sociological things, right? Like they didn't put people in their own village. Right. That would be humiliating. So they would move people to places strategically because they know what they're doing is illegitimate. So those were the changes to attempt to... Um, yeah, I mean, and, and it's true. Uh, those PA guys that were armed by Israel became the second intifada. That's where the guns came from. And the PA guys at the beginning of the intifada, people went to them, you know, like <clears throat> Marwan Barghouti went to his, his men and he said, you don't have to fight. You don't have to fight in this uprising but you got to give us your guns. And so he went around and collected from all these PA security officials, he collected all their guns and gave them a way to say, you know, like, I'm not against you. Um, I don't want to get killed by the Israelis for doing it, but I'm putting my weapon, my service weapon into the pile. And that's, boom, that's when there was weapons all of a sudden in the hands of West Bank communities who for the three or four days before that were just getting massacred in the streets, right? Israel was just opening fire on demonstrations. And then there was a couple demonstrations where Palestinian security forces shot back at Israel. And then that was mayhem. And so Marwan Barghouti organized people and said, like, we can't be having this on a one-off basis. Like, let's collect all the weapons. Let's, you know, and that's how the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades were formed and the Tanzim. By, by saying like, let's redistribute the weaponry that Israel and the United States has fashioned us. Um, and the military training in theory that they had been working on for you know a decade after Oslo. In, uh, in the coming weeks and months, um, you know, I, I mean, it, it feels right now like tensions are, are super high and thick um, in the West Bank. Um, you know, as well as Gaza, but but especially in the West Bank, in the coming weeks and months, um, what what kind of terrain um, would 
Palestinian resistance factions be facing? Um, you know, if if a if an uprising, if if another intifada were to break out at this point, I mean, what what could that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the question, and I think it's the question um, I'm sure that's happening in cafes and living rooms all over Palestine. Um, Israel has, for 70 years, had a you know a divide and conquer policy that's so obvious to see that they literally put concrete walls as their divides, right? Um, and you know, people have three different types of ID at least because some of those IDs break down into multiple IDs themselves. So, where can you have congregations? I mean, if you look at even Shireen's funeral. It was like tens of thousands of people, but there were they were stopped at this checkpoint. There was thousands at that checkpoint. There was thousands over there. So, yeah, it's going to be, um, yeah. I, I, and I don't think Israel knows either. I'm not sure Israel knows either. I think the the idea that Dayton trained new men it seems unlikely. I believe that if the tribe, if the community uh, is locked in struggle. And for Palestinians, it's virtually an existential struggle at this point. Um, that um, a popular uprising is inevitable. But I, I, I don't know how soon. I, I don't know how soon I see that. Um, but I don't think anyone does. And people don't see all the great moments in history often. So um, but I, I'm optimistic for sure. And I think that it's important to note that Palestinians paid a brutal price for their uprising. You know, people, they lost a lot of family members, scientists, you know, journalists, doctors, mathematicians, artists, um, you know, grandmas and grandpas, young brothers. So the toll is high and they know the toll is high. And I think that, um, the, the thing about Palestinians is that should an opening, should there be an opening, should an, op an opportunity arise, um, it always seems like, um, you know, rallying the troops is not, uh, not the hard part. There's a, a significant amount of unity that I think maybe faded a bit in the last, you know, decades. The Syria war definitely made things complicated for Palestine solidarity stuff. Um, but I think we should be able to, at this point, um, you know, be part of an international, um, you know, consensus or uh, a operate set of operating principles that makes um, Palestinians have as much space as possible. Um, in the meantime, through BDS, you know, boycott, divestment, sanctions, campaigns, um, and various things like that. Um, and then when the time comes to be ready. John Elmer, you are a uh, journalist and researcher and my co-host on The Brief Podcast at thebriefpodcast.com. Uh, your website is johnelmer.ca and you're on Twitter at John Elmer. John, thank you so much. Um, and uh, we'll have you back on uh, real soon. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Nora. Right. Good thank talking you. to you, Asa. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit like, leave a comment, 
these engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.